Well, good morning. It's great to be with you today. I want to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Matt Blackwell, and I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone at our South Austin location. And uh, so it's great to be here to open up the Word together with you. We're going to be in Exodus. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to open it to Exodus. Uh, we're going to spend time in a couple of places, but primarily Exodus chapter 40 is where we're going to be spending uh, the bulk of our time this morning. And so as you know, we are often running into Advent, right? The leftovers are in the fridge or gone, as the case may be. Uh, and so you're often running. We're about to run into December. We got the trees uh, lit up and we're ready to go into this next season called Advent. And Advent literally, I mean, the word literally means the coming. And it's when we as the church begin to think on and prepare for the coming of Christ, the incarnation, Christmas. It's this season that we prepare for uh, to celebrate what happened in that manger on that, that day. Uh, and that's what this season will be. And so this Advent's going to be a little bit unique because we're studying Christmas sort of through the lens of Exodus. And even more specifically, studying uh, Advent and Christmas through the lens of the Old Testament tabernacle. And you might be saying, how in the world, what in the world does the tabernacle have anything to do with Christmas? What does the tent out in the desert have anything to do with the baby in the manger? And what we will see as we begin to study this is that they have everything to do with one another because both the tent and the manger are screaming forth the redemptive plan of God. And we're beginning to see how God saves people through the tabernacle. We're also seeing how God saves people through the manger. And we're going to be seeing his redemptive history played out uh, all the way from Exodus up to our current day today. So that's where we'll be spending our time this morning is in, in the latter part of Exodus. If you've been tracking with us over the last year or so, you know, Exodus is kind of an exciting book. There's lots, of going, lots going on. There's, you know, the military conquest of Egypt. There's God setting uh, people free out of slavery. There's the plagues. There's the Red Sea, right? They cross the Red Sea with the wall of water and they move through that. I mean, that's literally the stuff that blockbuster movies with Christian Bale are made of. Like that's Batman as Moses. Uh, and that we get to see uh, this, these major themes played out in the early parts of Exodus. But most of us give up about Exodus 21 because something begins to happen. And it goes from plagues and conquest and Red Sea and miracles to talking about curtains and cubits and all of these kinds of things. And it all of a sudden seems kind of boring in comparison to the beginning of the book. But here's the reality is that if we don't understand the tabernacle, then we don't understand Exodus. Because as we talked about over and over and over, the theme of Exodus isn't just that God sets his people free, right? We said the theme of Exodus is that God sets his people free that they might be with him and that they might worship him. So the theme doesn't end. It starts in slavery, but the book doesn't end until we get to worship. So we have to recognize that. Here's how uh, Exodus says it itself. Exodus 29, verse 44. This is what God says. He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I'm the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And so we've seen this theme over and over and over again that God saves people to be with him and to worship him. And the good news for us is that that's not just the story of Exodus. 
That's not just the story of a people group a few thousand years ago. It's really our story. That God has redeemed and saved and brought us out of slavery to sin so that we might be with him and be worshipers of him. That we might glorify him. That's the theme of God's story among us. And so what we're going to do is, is we're going to move quickly through a lot of material. So I hope you're over uh, your, your tryptophan from all that turkey and all those leftovers. And I'm going to ask you to engage because we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Uh, and so here's what we want to do. We want to do three things. One, uh, I want to give us an overview of the tabernacle. What's the purpose? What's the point of the Old Testament tabernacle? Two, I want to look at one particular component within the tabernacle. And then three... I want to help us understand how does all this relate to us at Christmas. All right? So that's where we'll be headed this morning. Number one, what is the point of the tabernacle? So we'll be in Exodus 40. And as you're opening to Exodus 40, uh, let me remind you that the tabernacle takes up 15 chapters of the book um, of Exodus. And so instead of reading all 15 chapters, I thought that might take a little long. Uh, And so we're going to read a shorter portion. It's still kind of long. It's 18 verses, but it's not 15 chapters. So you're welcome. Uh, So Exodus 40. I want to start in verse 16. And I want to read these verses. And as we do so, I want you to look for something. Uh, Over and over and over again, eight times there's a phrase that's repeated. So I want you to see the repetition uh, that's being written here in these verses. So let's read together. This is Exodus chapter 40, starting in verse 16. It says, Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he he put the bases in place and erected the frames and inserted the crossbars and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. And he took the tablets of the covenant law and he placed them in the ark and he attached poles to the ark and put the uh, atonement cover over it. And then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielding the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. And Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. And he placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. And then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. And he set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. And he placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar. And he put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. And they washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. And then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar. And put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. And so even in reading just a few verses, you see the detail that is expressed here. And this is a summary of the last 14 chapters. And so if you're reading through Exodus, you're getting all of this detail about the tabernacle. And Moses is is doing and diligent. Did you notice the repetition there? Eight times in 18 verses. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. 
Over and over and over, Moses is taking exactly what God said and diligently doing just that. He's not asking questions. He's not pushing back. He's saying, Lord, I maybe don't understand all this, but I'm going to do it as you've commanded. And God commands it a very specific way. And I want you to see this uh, because here's what happens is that essentially Moses is setting it up from the inside out. He's setting it up from the most holy to uh, the least, to the, to the most common. And so I wanted to show you this image because it's hard to get in our heads kind of what's happening and what the tabernacle might look like. So this is an artist rendering of what the tabernacle might have looked like. And I want to show you how it's set up and why it's set up this particular way. So on this side, we'll see where Moses begins. You see that little gold box? That's the Ark of the Covenant. Within the Ark of the Covenant are the tablets of the law that Moses was given by God. That's the first thing that Moses sets up. And he moves out from there and he sets up these big curtains. And from out from there he puts the altar and then the lampstand and the table of bread and then another curtain. And then into the courtyard you see the, the basin to wash and then the place where sacrifices were made. And then outside of that would be outside into the camp. So why does he set it up this way? He sets it up this way on purpose because essentially this is a reversal of Eden. It's a reversal of the Garden of Eden. And I want to tell you what I mean by that. If you rewind all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you remember that God created Adam, and He created Eve, and He put them in the Garden of Eden. And they had unfiltered access to God. They had the complete presence of God all the time. Can you imagine what that would be like? Like you feel like your, your, your prayers are hindered. They had complete access to God. There was no sin, there was no disease, there was no cancer, there was no, none of those things. They were naked, there was no shame. And they had this presence of the Holy One. And that lasted all of about two chapters of the Bible. Because in chapter 3 of Genesis, you remember what happened. Is they take the forbidden fruit and they eat of it. And what happens at that moment is that there's now brokenness in their own hearts, there's brokenness relationally between one another. Remember, they hide from, the, from one another. And then ultimately, there's brokenness between them and God. They hide from God. And so something happened in Genesis 3 that the presence of God was taken away. They didn't just lose the garden. They lost God. And in the end of Genesis chapter 3, we're told this. Genesis 3, 22. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, at, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so what's happening is this. Remember in Genesis 3, they lose the garden, but they lose the presence of God. So they're outside of the presence of God. So here's what's happening, and here's what's amazing about the tabernacle. Even though they were outside the presence of God, here's what God does is in the middle of the desert, he is moving towards his people. His presence is coming back towards them. Though they had disobeyed, though they had left the garden because of their sin, though they were away from God, God is moving and chasing them. And how does he do that? By setting up residence among them. They lived in tents in the desert. And so God says, I'm moving into the neighborhood. I'm setting up my own tent and I'm setting it up near you because I'm moving near you. My presence is near you. There's hope for you. All that brokenness that you feel in your heart, all that brokenness relationally, all that brokenness spiritually, there is hope for you because my presence is drawing near to you. But the presence is really different than it was in Eden. 
Did you notice in Eden they, had, they walked with God in the cool of the day? But in the desert, the tabernacle has all these barriers, has all these curtains, has all these basins, has all these regulations to get to the presence of God. And so they have the presence of God in the tabernacle, but it wasn't like it was before. And so here's what's happening. Is that one first motion and movement of God in the tabernacle to say my presence is drawing near you is really a foreshadowing for a greater movement of God towards his people in the incarnation, in Christ coming among us. Because here's what happens. If we could put that picture back up, I want to show you what happens and why this is so significant for us. Because here we see the movement this way. If you were to come into the presence of God, you first come through the curtain and you come into the courtyard. And the common Israelite could be in the courtyard. And the common Israelite would bring a sacrifice and that sacrifice would be put on this burnt offering altar at the beginning here. But then what would happen was that if you were a priest, you could move forward in the courtyard and you would come to that basin and you would wash. And then you would move further and into that place, you'd go into that first curtain. The first thing you would see would be the lampstand. The second thing you would see would be the table with bread. You'd continue on and you'd see another altar where another sacrifice was made. And then you would walk through the curtain and on that curtain was the giant cherubim. And here's why this is so significant because it's this, is that Jesus, Jesus comes and he takes away all those barriers to the presence of God. He comes in and Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He becomes the sacrifice. No longer a need for it. He comes to the basin and he doesn't just require us to cleanse ourselves. He cleanses us completely. He moves forward and the first thing inside the tent you would see would be the lampstand. He becomes the light of the world. On the other side, he is the bread of life. He is the final sacrifice. And then moving into that curtain... Into that curtain, into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest would go into that place. And only the high priest would go in there once a year on the most holy day. Jesus, who is the great priest, goes into that place. But not only that, that both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark tell us this about that curtain. That on that curtain there was a cherubim. Remember that word uh, should be reminding us of, of the angel that was set up between the Garden of Eden and humanity. Remember, God sets an angel, a cherubim, at that place to remove us from his presence. And so on that curtain is a giant image of a cherubim. And what happens is that that curtain, when Jesus died on the cross, is torn from top to bottom. As if God himself is tearing that apart and saying, we won't be needing this any longer. The presence of God is now available to us. Jesus says, it is finished, and it's at that moment where, the, ta- where the, the, the curtain is torn from top to bottom. Here's what Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, let us draw near to God with full assurance of faith. Now here's what happened is that Jesus was the, was the curtain. The Hebrews 10 just said that his body was the one that was torn so that we might access the holy of holies. That we might have the presence of God with us. He becomes all of those barriers. He becomes all of those things so that we might fully have the presence of God back with us. He's a reversal of the curse of Eden. That's the point of what the tabernacle is showing us. We're reminded that here's what God says the purpose of the tabernacle is in Exodus 25, verse 8. 
It says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. And so again, God is being very specific in how he's telling Moses to make it. He says, I want you to make this because I want to dwell among the people. And I want you to make it very specifically. So God isn't sort of like giving Moses some busy work because he doesn't have anything else for Moses to do. He's actually saying, no, I want you to do this. I want you to do this deliberately. I want you to do this on purpose. And I want you to do it according to the way I've told you. And Moses does just that. And he sets up all of these components, all of these pieces of furniture... And what we'll be doing over the next couple of weeks as we study Advent is we're going to be walking through the tabernacle together. We're going to be walking through and saying, how does this piece in the tabernacle point us to Christ? And so we'll be talking about the altar. We'll be talking about the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. We'll be talking about the Holy of Holies. And this morning, very briefly, we want to talk about just one component that was inside the tabernacle The first thing that the priest would see when he went into the curtain, he would look to his left, and the only light that would be in there would be the light of the lampstand. And that would be the constant and the only light that we would see. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. So in Exodus 25, here's how the lampstand is described for us. Verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its flowers shall be of one piece with it, and there shall be six branches going out of its sides. And then the next eight verses could go on to describe what the lampstand would look like in detail. So instead of reading those, I want to show you what an artist's rendering of the lampstand might have looked like. Uh, This is designed on purpose with seven places for light to go out. It's designed to look like a tree that is blossoming. And all of this is on purpose. And so let me just do three quick observations on this piece of furniture inside of the tabernacle. Number one, it's made of pure gold. It's made of pure gold. Now the basin and all the things out in the courtyard were made of bronze. It was a less expensive metal. But when you draw near to the presence of God, when you get near to the Holy of Holies, all of a sudden the value and the worth begin to increase. That the value and worth of God's presence is beyond compare. And we're seeing that even in the way that the furniture is made and what it's made of. Second observation is this. Is that it was made to look like a tree. It was made to look, it had branches. It had almond blossoms blooming. What's the point? What's going on there? So what we see is, remember back in Genesis, remember back in Genesis 3, when the people ate of the fruit of the tree, what happened? God says, don't eat of that tree. They disobey and they eat of that tree and death becomes their reality. Darkness clouds their vision. And now you fast forward into the tabernacle and what do you see? You see a lampstand that's giving light, light representing the presence of God. But not only light, it's a new tree, a different tree that has new blossoms, that is showing forth life, that life is available. And then you move all the way to the Gospels and you see a final tree. And on this tree, this one was the tree of Calvary where where Christ died, where darkness was ever, forever pushed back, where life is given. 
And so what we're seeing is this pattern, this theme throughout the scriptures where God is saying, no, light and life is available. I'm coming towards you in the tabernacle, but ultimately I'm coming towards you in Christ and doing what you could not do for yourself of giving you light that exposes your need, but I'm also answering the very need that you have in Christ. And so we see this tabernacle uh, with this lampstand. We see it as the light Uh, And really, that's where we get our connection to Christmas this morning, is he is the light of the world. We lit a candle, we sang about this, we're reading about this. If you remember all the way back in Isaiah, the great prophecy of the coming Messiah, Isaiah chapter 9 says it like this, Uh, Isaiah 9 2 says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so even the prophet is saying there's coming a day when there will be dawn. There's coming a day when light is going to show up, when darkness is going to be pushed back. And so that's what we see, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, why we do what we do at Christmas time. And so one of the traditions for the Blackwell family, one of the things that we love to do is we love to put up Christmas lights. We love to go drive around. We know the neighborhoods that, that do it up big. Uh, and if that's you, thank you. Uh, we go and we get to check those out. But like, if you're going to go do Christmas lights in Austin, where is everybody going to go? You're going to go to Zilker. Did you know that the, the Trail of Lights was uh, one of the two most popular events in all of, uh, of Austin? So it's, it's bigger than... UT football, bigger than uh, F1, bigger than South by Southwest. It's ACL and the Trail of Lights that both have nearly 420,000 people coming through those, that crazy little tunnel. So we all get our hot chocolate and we get our kettle corn and we spin under that tree, which by the way is a bad idea because things happen, right? Uh, you're bumping into people, you're getting a little queasy, but we do it anyway uh, because we all go down, we're mesmerized by the millions of lights in those trees. Hundreds of thousands of Austinites, more than, than, than half, about half of all Austinites go down to see this. Why? Because we are mesmerized by it. We, we, we want to see it. We were, we're attracted to the trail of lights. And so we were setting up Christmas lights uh, at our house the other day, yesterday, and the neighborhood kids were running around in the yard and they're trying to steal my ladder uh, and, or come up the ladder and I'm kicking them back down. I didn't do that. But, uh, but they're throwing tennis balls at me while I'm trying to put up lights, which I'm not sure what's going on in our neighborhood. In South Austin, you never know. And so we're there, we're putting up Christmas lights and one of my sons said, Dad, why do we put up Christmas lights in our trees at Christmas? And we don't do this for any other holiday. Why are we decorating the outside? And I said, I'm glad you asked. Prepare for a sermon, son. Uh, And so I had to keep it short. Their attention span is about 30 seconds. So I said, okay, here's the deal is that Jesus is the light of the world. And so we decorate and we celebrate not only loudly in song, but brightly. We want to put lights on our house because light has come. Because darkness has not overcome the light. And so we're celebrating that light has come, that the light of the world is Jesus. And by that light, we see light and we see life and we see God. He said, okay, can I throw a tennis ball at you, right? Let's let's move on. He was not really all that impressed. He will be one day when he hears this sermon, I hope. Uh, But that's the deal, is that's what we celebrate when it comes to Christmas. Here's how John's gospel talks about this. John chapter 1 says it like this. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here how, is how John is describing Christmas. He said the word in the beginning, remember the first words of the Bible are in the beginning. So John is hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1. He's bringing us back to that place and he's saying the word was in the beginning. The word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14 he does something unique here. He says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there in the original language is a verb form of the word tabernacle. So it literally could read, and, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so God's first movement towards his people was through this tent. But this tent was only foreshadowing and pointing towards God's greater movement towards his people when he himself would come among us and walk among us. That the word was God and walked among us. And here's the beautiful truth of that is because God has come, we no longer need the, the altar of sacrifice. Jesus has become that. We no longer need the basin to cleanse ourselves from sin. Why? Because Jesus himself cleanses us from sin. We no longer need the candles because why? Jesus is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is the curtain that ushers us into the presence of God. We no longer need the tabernacle because we have Jesus, the light of the world, the one who ultimately reveals who God is and the one who brings us into the very presence of God. And so what do we do with all that? What do we do with that? I want us to close our time and I want us to know something and then I want us to do something. I want us to know something and do something. First, I want us to know something about this. And this is what I, I hope that you will capture. Is man, I want you to know that, that God's redemptive purpose, not only in Exodus, but in your life is this, is that he sets you free from slavery to sin. That he draws you out of darkness. He draws you out of that, not so that you are free in and of itself, but that you are free now to be with him and to worship him. Man, I hope that you know that. I hope that you're walking in that. I, even at Thanksgiving, I hope that on your heart and on your mind was God has set, set me free and he wants to be with me. Not just sets you free so that you can go on your merry way. He sets you free and then he sets a ta- place at the table for you. He says, I want you at my table. I want to make food for you. I'm preparing a banquet for you. I want to be with you. That's different than just a God who saves. It's a God who saves and a God who's with us. So I want you to know that God loves you in that way. And then there might be in a room this size, there are some of you who are still in this place, man. You're feeling the weight of your slavery to sin. You're still walking in darkness. You're asking yourself the question and maybe even said, man, I'm going to go to church because I want to know God. I just don't know how to get there. I don't know how to know him. I feel like the weight of sin is continually dragging me down. And here's the good news is that the way that you know God is through his son, Jesus. That Jesus comes and he is the light of the world. And you know what light does? When you turn light on, it exposes what's around. It reveals what's around. And so when the light of the world comes, right? When you turn the light on in the middle of the night, what, what you want to do is you want to close your eyes. You want to shield your eyes from it. 
And when light comes, it exposes us in a certain way. And we want to run from it. That's what Adam and Eve did. Remember when God came after sin, what did they do? They clothed themselves and they hid in the bushes as if you can hide from God's presence. But man, we've been doing the same thing ever since then. We've been running from God, but it is the kindness of God to expose a need in us. God turns on the light in our soul and it can be really uncomfortable. But here's the good news is that the scripture says it like this. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I mean, if that's you, I want you to know this, that it's God's kindness who draws you and exposes your need. But at the exact same time, not only does he expose your need, but he reveals himself as the remedy to your great need. How do you know God? You know God through his son, Jesus. And you can do that today. You can say, God, I want to know you. Would you allow me to trust in the sufficiency of the cross for the deepness of my sin? And would you let me believe and know that he is resurrected from the dead? And because of that, I'll have life and life eternal. I want you to know that. The second thing I want us to do is I want us to do something together. Uh, And it's this, is that Jesus came not only that we might receive him, but that we might reflect him. Jesus calls us the light of the world. Did you know that? That Jesus came as the light of the world. And then he says this of you. You now are the light of the world. Here's what Matthew 5 says. Matthew 5, 14. This is Jesus talking to the church. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So you and I, we not only receive from Christ, but we reflect Christ. We reflect his light with what? With our good works. The word good there is the word beautiful in the Greek. With your beautiful life, people are able to see God. By the way that you don't jump into the gossip at, at, in the office. By the way that you compose yourself at the office Christmas party. By the way you talk to, care for, love the neighbors that God's put you around. By the way you're honest. By the way you do these things, you are shining forth by your good works, by your beautiful works. You are revealing and, and reflecting the goodness of God. And here's the deal is that none of us create our own light. We only reflect the light from the Lord. And so I don't know if y'all remember like a week ago, remember the supermoon? Uh, the supermoon was super bright. And I was in my backyard, this is in the middle of the night, in the backyard, supermoon in the sky, uh, and it was so bright that it was literally casting shadows in the middle of the night. It was casting shadows in darkness. The, the, the moon was so reflective of the sun that it shone itself into my yard and it was casting shadows there. That you and I, we don't create our own light. We simply position ourselves or God positions us in a way to reflect his light in dark places. Church, that that might be our identity. That we might be a place that reflects light in dark places. There's some dark corners of our city that God would place us purposefully to be a light among a people who are living in darkness. That we might be a people that reflect him by the way that we love and serve and give with our generosity, with our grace, with our kindness, with our love. That we might reflect back to him all that he is. Man, we're coming into this season that's marked with joy and peace and love. But yet so many of us just run through this season because it's so busy with parties and craziness and deadlines that we miss the whole point but that we might be a people that collectively reflect who God is 
to a watching world. And we do that collectively. We do that in community. Because nobody would go down to Zilker, drive down there because they set up one light in a tree. Right? Hey, we put a light in a tree. Everybody come down. 400,000 people. Hey, there it is. One light. No, no. The reason we go down there is because there's millions of lights all shining at the same time. And that's what draws Austin out of the, of the darkness. We want to go see the lights. We want to go see uh, them in hundreds of thousands of us want to go see this. Why? Because those lights are beautifully displayed when one and one and one all add up. And all of a sudden there's something beautiful to be seen. So you don't have to do it all yourself. But in community what we get to do is we get to reflect back who God is. In our generosity, in our joy, in our peace. And we can change the narrative of what Christmas is all about. Because what we've heard it's all about is Black Friday. What we heard it's all about is the red Starbucks cups. Like these are the stories about Christmas. And we want to change that narrative. We want to say, no, it's about the light of the world coming. That dawn has come. That darkness is gone. And darkness does not overcome the light. Because the light has come to reveal to us the risen Savior. So that's what we want to be about. That's what we want to celebrate. And then we get to gather together in worship. And say, Lord, would you give us the joy of worshiping you? Because we know you. Because you've set us free. That we might be with you. And that we might be worshipers of you. So let me pray for us. God, we do thank you for your grace. For your kindness. That you have saved us and set us free. That while we could not see... Lord, you turned on the lights, that you became the light, that you showed us yourself, that you revealed our great need for you, but at the very same time, you revealed the remedy. You revealed yourself. So God, we ask and we pray that for those here today who, and they've even said in their heads, I want to know God, but I don't know how to do it. Lord, would you be so kind as to move near them by your spirit? Would you bring somebody alongside them that would help them understand the gospel of grace? That though they are yet sinners, Christ died for them. That he who had no sin became sin for them so that in them, in him, he might become the righteousness of God. That we might know your righteousness. That we might become that because of your great grace. So Lord, would you make us a church that reflects back to this city, that reflects back in this world, that reflects back to our families of that which we have first received in you, of your kindness, of your generosity, of your love, that many would see the good news of who you are this Christmas because of the love and the light that you're creating in us. God, would you help others see you because of the way that we live? We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.